guys, welcome back to another episode of Walking Closer Podcast. This is episode 99, God's Enemies and the Chief Benefactor. Of course, this is part 9 of this ongoing series that we've been going through called Challenging Perspectives. And in this series, I have... I guess I'm attempting to uncover some of the social and cultural norms that describe the times in which various narratives within Scripture take place. And I think this sort of study is imperative if we're going to truly understand what it is that we're reading. And, and, and I hope that I have clearly demonstrated this fact uh, to you. We use lots of different examples and I think I've at least attempted to do to do this, like for instance, when talking about the Apostle Paul in his use of the terms grace and faith, which were terms that were commonly used to describe the relationship between patrons and clients. And in fact, I think the concepts that these terms represented were probably reflective of the relationships people had with one another in helping one another and showing honor to one another, and that being reciprocated uh, as well. And so just a quick reminder, let's look at these two words before we jump into today's episode. Now, grace. Grace represented a few things. First, it represented one's willingness to give. There's the, the desire, right? The will. And then uh, that, that, that's oftentimes described as generosity. And secondly, it refers to the actual gift itself, the actual favor. And finally, it represented the response of the client or the friend. In other words, uh, the recipient, right? The, 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 their, their gratitude for uh, this favor, this generosity that has been shown to them. So that's grace. And then faith, faith carried with it a few ideas as well. Think dependability, think trust and loyalty. Uh, think I'm going to stick with you through thick and thin. I'm going to be there with you by your side no matter what. I'm sticking with you through the whole thing, okay? That's the idea. And it was uh, connected to both parties as well. Both parties had to be dependable to one another. Both needed to be able to trust the other. And both, both would expect the other to remain loyal to them no matter, no matter what. This is the context of grace and faith during the times in which the Apostle Paul writes about them. This was the common understanding of these words. And so when Paul used these words, they would have been understood in connection with their everyday usage. And it's, and it's also important to remember that the terms grace and faith were not Christian words. In other words, the church did not create these words nor the concepts these words represented. Uh, they just just used it. Uh, when Paul uses these terms, especially together, their larger context was outside of any religion. Uh, this was the common usage of them. But Paul uses these concepts that people understood as a way to explain some things about Jesus and God, Jehovah. But before before we can get into just how he does this, I think it's helpful to understand maybe the relationship between the Romans or just in generally speaking, Gentiles in general, um, and their gods. So there was a there was a large number of gods represented in Rome. 
um, both through worship in temples and in homes, so both public and private worship. Uh, across the empire, okay, Rome itself was believed to have been founded by gods. And as a result, Rome felt compelled to worship these gods in such a way that they would approve of what Rome was doing, of the Roman Empire and all that it did. And the Roman gods were really really a blend of various deities from different cultures, and they, they highly resembled the ancient Greek gods. And they had what was referred to as the 12 greatest gods and goddesses, which paralleled the Greek gods. But I mean, they had Latin names and such, but they really paralleled uh, the Greek gods. And they also had the big three most important gods, Jupiter, who was the protector of the state. They had Juno, protector of women, and Minerva, the goddess of craft and wisdom. And they, they also had other major gods, such as Mars, the god of war, and Mercury, the god of trade, and the messenger of the gods, and Bacchus, the god of grapes and wine. And we could say a lot more about all of this and other gods, but suffice it to show that they had a wide array of deities that represented a host of things for which they would feel the need to appease, to honor, uh, and to beseech for. But let's get a little deeper now into what this relationship looked like between people and their gods. And in order to seek the approval of these gods... It really didn't have anything to do with how you acted. It had had more to do with, say, following the correct religious observances, right? The, the following the correct religious rituals, and this worship would include things like you know a statue or an image of some sort, and an altar or a temple, so they could offer sacrifices and prayers, which could be done both privately and in in public. Now, here's where it gets interesting. See these. These prayers or, or these requests were considered like, like a trade to the gods. If the god did what they asked, then they promised to do something specific in return. And when you, you made this type of, of trade, right, it was, like a, it was like a contract. And if you wanted to persuade the gods to give you whatever favor you needed um, to pay attention to you, right? You might offer food or wine or some other animal sacrifice and, and actually eat eat that animal. And again, we can go into much more detail about this, but I think this is sufficient in helping you understand maybe some context, the, the context, the context into which Paul wrote his letters. And there's some contrasts uh, with these ideas and how God is represented, but yet Paul uses familiar language to illustrate these points and showing how God indeed is of love significance and grabs their grabs their attention. So you have you have the relationship between the patron and client, and you also have this relationship that people had with the gods. And both of these types of relationships really describe for us how they perceived the world functioned. Like this is how you get things done. This is this is what makes things happen. And then Jesus comes along. And then his disciples, and, and particularly the Apostle Paul. And they all they bring a different message, and that message is good news, especially in contrast to how they perceive the world actually functioned. You see, in the New Testament, God is presented as the chief benefactor or patron. So check this out. Um, Romans 11, 34 and 36. Paul said, For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has... Notice the language, given a gift 
to him that he might be repaid. There's your patron-client language. For from him, notice this language, for from him and through him and to him are all things. And so, to him be glory forever. Notice what is being said here and how God is being portrayed. He is first being portrayed as the chief benefactor, right? A patron that far exceeds typical expectations for that day, far surpass any expectations of any earthly patron. But secondly, what it also is doing is painting a picture of the fact that this is how a god would function, right? And that would be in contrast to their own experiences or their own perceptions of how God, how deities, how deities worked. But you see how Paul uses the cultural concepts of his day, this language to, to explain his point. And so let's, let's just look at a few ways in which God is depicted as the chief benefactor, this patron, the, the, to, to top all patrons, right, in the, in the New Testament. First, God is depicted as actually being generous to his enemies, even those who would be hostile to him. Now, this is, this is unheard of. Uh, Jesus said in Luke 6.35, But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Uh, remember, you see the patron language here, the ungrateful. We're talking about one's response to the favor to the grace that is being given to the generosity, right? Responding it with, with gratefulness. Uh, and But Jesus says that God, God does this even to those who will not respond. Now, remember, in those relationships, you would expect that to be the case, but yet that's not necessarily a factor as to determining whether or not God is going to show favor or God is going to be loving or kind. Um, it's... It, just isn't. He's willing to do it to the ungrateful even. Romans 5.10, Paul says that while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. Read that again. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. Now, I don't want you to miss what is being said here. This generosity, this favor, this grace that that is being given by God is not contingent on what the person has done or can do. It's just simply an outpouring of the character of God to love those who are ungrateful. And remember, that is, that is one of the responses of grace. And to show such favor to his enemies. Like, this is unheard of for what you could expect from people, let alone the gods. But this God, Jehovah, he's different. And in fact, God is depicted as being generous to everyone. And that was, that was unusual, especially in the realm of benefactors, okay? Uh, patrons had to be let's say, somewhat careful and strategic about who became their friends or who they took under as their uh, clients. Um, this is a risky business, okay? And uh, you can get in a lot of the trouble here. You can find yourself in some pretty tight spots, and you have to make sure that uh, if that happens, that you can depend upon um, this person that you're helping out. So they had to be careful and strategic about who they showed favors to, who they took in, and treated essentially like family. And when you take a few steps up from just the this private private patronage and look at the more powerful public patrons that you know finance these games or these building projects, 
they were not in the business of accepting any and all personal clients or friends. Just because they had the resources and the ability to do so, they did not. And this is why, one of the reasons why brokers were important. You would need to know someone who had a personal connection. But these guys, these guys seem to have, have been, at least for the most part, out of reach. But when it came to Jehovah, the narrative is, is much different. See, God is painted as being generous to all, and this generosity was not based on your character or reliability or what he thinks he can get from you or what you have to offer. In fact, he, he invited all people, which was a hard thing to accept, a hard concept to, to swallow during this time. I mean, bringing Jews and Gentiles together as one, that would not have been seen as a practical thing, thing to do. You're asking for trouble there. You're asking for you're asking for tension, and and we know this. It was the source of some of the problems we see in the New Testament letters. In fact, it, it literally took an act of God to begin to help the Jews understand this about God, and we see this with Peter. Remember on the rooftop having a vision that led him to the household of Cornelius eventually, and and when he is retelling this experience, notice what he says. He said, "As I began to speak." The Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the, notice the language, same gift to them as he gave to us. You hear the language of grace? If God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us, when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in, in God's way? And then Paul says in Galatians 3.28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So there you go. God is generous to all, and as such, he is the chief benefactor, a patron above all other patrons. We're talking about the ultimate patron. Um, and and in doing and being so, he like he doesn't operate, he doesn't operate in the expected way. He goes far and beyond, and uh, it's like the ideal patron. And so then the New Testament letters go on to depict God as as uh, using further language, right, to depict God in this way as as faithful, like think dependable and trustworthy and loyal. Um, just a couple of more passages here. Uh, Hebrews 10.23, when he says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Now, I find that very interesting that that's said right there, because the Hebrew writer goes on to talk about the very nature of faith and how faith works and how faith takes you through the difficult things, how faith is a process that leads you to thinking whether or not the one who is leading you, guiding you, the one who is calling you is trustworthy, is someone that you can follow, someone you can depend upon, someone who is going to be loyal to you, so therefore you can be loyal to them. And in the process, he lists all these examples of faith. We call it the faith's hall of fame. And these people who were called to do certain things or did certain things that 
seemed unrealistic maybe at times, made them question some things at times, but yet they go through this process, this process that leads them to considering whether or not God is faithful, He is trustworthy, He is loyal. And as they go through this process, then they think back upon the things, the reasons why they would have to consider whether or not He was or wasn't. Ultimately, they consider, uh, they decide conclude that he is, and therefore they make choices, choices that lead them to experiences, right? That's what living by faith is. And the whole reason why we live by faith, we can live by faith, and my faith works in this way, it's because God himself demonstrates himself as being, first of all, he is the one who is loyal, who is trustworthy, who is dependable, who has our best interests at heart. And as a result, we can in turn be trustworthy and loyal and dependable you know, to Him. Like That's the picture. That's how that works. Again, in Titus 1-2, when uh, Paul says, in hope of eternal life, which God, who literally the non-lying God, promised before the ages began. Again, think dependable, trustworthy, and loyal. God is the one who has shown himself, demonstrated himself to be such, and therefore we have reasons to move forward, continue on, walk side by side, entrust ourselves, which is the term believe, by the way, and live by live by faith, which is the acting out of this trust, this loyalty, and this uh, dependability. And so with that in mind... We can take the New Testament letters tell us our requests, the the asking of favors to him. Now, that is not all that prayer is. However, the imagery is there to help make a connection, understanding that you have this access to God, which the Hebrew writer says in Hebrews 4.16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need, literally, excuse me, to help in time of need, literally for well-timed help. And so what that tells us that, and notice the language of grace, notice the language of patron-client, notice the cultural connections that one can make there in its common usage. The point is, I believe, is that we can trust that he is going to be loyal and dependable exactly when we need him to be, right? Well-timed help. And then on top of that, there is a picture of this ongoing favor that just continues to pour from the character of God. Consider what Paul says in Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. In other words, what would he withhold from us if this is what he has given? If this is how he demonstrates his loyalty, his trustworthiness, his dependability, his faithfulness to us. And so he is presented as the source of every good and perfect gift. James 1, 17. So you see, Over and over again, there is this language that ties us to the concepts of the patron system, and yet the language is used in a context that rises so far above the limitations of what a patron would be expected to do. And then as such, it puts Jehovah in a stark contrast to to the gods that they were so accustomed to or how they perceived that the gods would function. Like, this is a God who is generous to everyone, even his enemies. This is a God who 
who, who we, can, we can trust to have our best interests at heart. We have this God's attention, and this God is dependable, and he's trustworthy, and he's loyal, and he is generous to all. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the picture of God painted for us with the terms grace and faith. Grace and faith are like the paintbrush. And this is the picture, this is the picture that it paints. It painted for the, the people to whom these letters were written, and it paints the same picture for us today. So, God's enemies and the chief benefactor. Episode 99. There it is. Oh, there's one more episode in this series, and it's episode one, 100. Finally made it to episode 100. And we're going to call this one Dancing the Dance of Grace. And, and I think it's, it's going to be a fitting end to this series. So be looking out for that sometime next week. But for now, grace and peace. I'll talk to you soon.